Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am the Story Career Consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. I am very excited to have with me as my guest today, William Rabkin, who is the author of one of my favorite screenwriting books called Writing the Pilot. Let me tell you a little bit about Bill. William Rabkin is a veteran showrunner whose executive producing credits, including the long-running Diagnosis Murder and the action hit Martial Law. His recent writing credits include Monk, Psych, and The Glades. He has written a dozen pilots for broadcasting cable networks and written and or produced more than 300 hours of dramatic television. He currently teaches screenwriting in the University of California, Riverside of Palm Desert's Low Residency MFA program. Very exciting. Um, So welcome, Bill. Thank you. Great to be here. Um, Thank you for joining us. Um, since I am such a huge fan of your book and your voice within the book, I'd love to start by asking you what inspired you to write this book. Well, you know, from the first moment I sold my first script, which was a terrible low-budget feature called 357 Vigilante, an assignment for New World Pictures, people would come up to me and say, I have this great idea for a screenplay. Let me tell you about it. Um, And as a writer, you get very good at running away very quickly because (laughs) you get cornered all the time. Uh, But this went on for a good, I don't know, 20 years or so. Everybody had an idea for a screenplay because everybody saw getting that movie made as the ticket to fame, fortune, and artistic satisfaction. And about five years ago probably about 10 minutes after the premiere of Mad Men, something strange happened. People didn't come up to me anymore and say, you know, I have a great idea for a screenplay. Instead, they'd say, I have a great idea for a pilot, or I have a great idea for a series. Um, And then I'd always get the offer that inevitably comes next, which is, here, I'll give you my idea, you develop it and sell it, and we'll split the money. (laughs) That was never really a particularly attractive notion to me, but I didn't want to be rude. So I was looking for a book I could recommend. I could say, you know, I don't really have the time to write your pilot for you and then give you half the money, uh, but why don't you read this brilliant book on the subject, and that will tell you everything you need to know. So I started looking through screenwriting books on Amazon and discovered that this was the one screenwriting book that didn't exist. And it was the one screenwriting book I could think of for which there was a real need. And once I got over my shock, I thought, well, somebody's got to write this book, and why not me? I love so it. I immediately sat down and started to write it. And it was just a fascinating experience because it forced me to make deliberate 
all of the instinctual thoughts I'd had while writing and watching pilots over the years. It was really one of the great writing experiences, and I don't usually think that about approaching nonfiction. Right. Right. I have to say, like, you really gave us an inside perspective of how you work creatively, and, and in doing so, gave so much valuable information to the writer about how to construct the TV pilot, which is, I think, definitely one of the hardest scripts to write because of all you have to establish in a half hour or an hour long script. Um, so tell us about your journey with pilot writing and what aha moments you hit along the way uh, in your own uh, creative process. It's funny. It's very hard for me to identify a lot of aha moments. When I look back, I just see myself kind of shuffling and stumbling and bumping into walls. I know that in this book I sound, or I try to sound, so knowledgeable about how you approach the concept of writing a pilot. And when I walk through the writing of the pilot my partner and I wrote called Ella Claw, you know, I'm really able to say, we made this decision and here's the ramifications of that decision. And we understood from those ramifications what we would then have to accomplish and how this would have to change. But so much of that is hindsight, um, especially working with Lee Goldberg, uh, with whom I wrote for so many years. Right. It was not that intellectual process. It was very instinctual. Um, and we would start off with an idea and start working it out and then go back to sort of what it was about and then work it out some more and then try and figure out what it was about some more. And it was always this slow but usually entertaining process. You know, I, it's rare that I've sat down and designed an idea for a show as neatly as I talk about in here. I've, I've been trying to do that more recently. The last show I, I went out and pitched was very much deliberately theme-driven, and I knew from the very top exactly what it was about and where it was going. Um, but I, I can't really say, ah, oh, and then I knew that, you know, yeah, it's... a math teacher and a chemistry teacher, a math dealer and a chemistry teacher. Right. Something like that. Right, but it's you know I think what's what's fascinating is the fact that you're talking about the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain. So I think it's very easy for you to teach the process and probably remove yourself from the creative side of the brain, and then it it's probably more difficult to then apply your own process. But I think you've probably made it easier, as you said, in in your pitches now, like leading. Uh, or having a theme drive the story, which I think is so great. And I know one of my favorite quotes that you wrote on theme that I love that kind of has to do with that, and there's a good time to bring it up. Um, let's see. You said, once again, we must return to the fact that a TV pilot and its resulting series need to be governed by a theme, a unifying or dominant idea. The theme determines the central conflict, and that central conflict must be embodied in lead characters. I love that. I have never heard it coined that way, and I thought, I really think that's excellent. So even that 
like you, I think probably by you going through the exercise of this book, I have to imagine elevated your own knowledge of the creative process. Do you think? Made me understand. You know, after twenty some odd years working in TV, it it really made me understand how great shows work much better than I had before. You know, when you have one of those shows that's so compelling that you have to watch four seasons right. streaming in, right. a, in a week. Right. You know, I went through that with Breaking Bad earlier right. this year. Right. Uh, and I, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that in the last two months, I've made it through seven seasons of Doctor Who. No. Oh, my God. I heard Doctor Who is excellent. I I snubbed this show for years. Cause right. When I was a kid, I'd seen the... Yeah, you know, sort of the kiddie version of it. They're making in nineteen what sixty seven. It was starting in sixty two or sixty three. Right. So it was like Doctor Who. It's all about running up and down corridors. And and a, a dear friend of mine whose taste I trust absolutely said, "You have to just check it out." And unbelievable. Haven't been able to stop watching. Uh, it's heartbreaking to me that I'm I'm almost done. With all with any show that this good that is this good, it's all so tightly wrapped around what it's about. Right. That every new episode just brings you further and further into the heart of that story. Right. And when you're watching Breaking Bad and you just get closer and closer to that central character as the show is pushing you further and further away because he becomes more repulsive. Right. And yet you just see that rage at his center of his soul and you know this is what the show is about. They know what they're doing. They know the story they're telling. Right. I agree. I'm a huge, huge fan of Breaking Bad. Did you see the pilot for Luther? Yes, I've seen uh, all, what is it, six episodes? Yes, exactly. I know. I think it's it's like three seasons of like maybe ten episodes total, I think. Um, I think it's like two seasons totaling eight. And it's really funny that he's brilliant. Yes. He he makes anything worth watching. Edris Alba, yeah, he is phenomenal. But it's fascinating. One big difference between English and American television is there are a lot of English TV writers who don't know how to design a franchise for the long run. Right. Obviously, Doctor Who is the uh, is a counterexample to that. Since right. It's been on the air for almost as long as I've been alive. Right. But you know, if you look at Luther, that first season was really so interesting. It had all these great aspects to it. Yeah, I and agree. Was in love with him and the ex-wife, and the end of the first season. They got rid of everything that made the show interesting. You're right. That's interesting. The second season, he's a cop. Right. So the wound that was driving him in the first season, right. No, it's true. And Alice is such a special, special part of of the first season. I know she's in the second season, but not as much. Right. Now, I want to jump back to something you asked before because you asked about aha moments. Right, right, right. Taking you off track by ranting about English television. Because um, it wasn't my aha moment, but right. it's one of my favorite stories about the writing process. Uh-huh. And it's a story that either Ed Zwick or Marshall Herskovitz used to talk about the 30-something pilot. Because if you remember far back enough to remember the 30-something pilot. Yes, I do. <laughs> scene at the end of the pilot where Michael and Elliot are talking. Right. And Elliot mentions something about this girl he's seeing on the side, he's cheating on his wife. Right. Um, and the one of them who didn't write that scene said, Elliot's marriage is in trouble. And the one who did write the scene said, well, I guess it is now. <laughs> you, that, his marriage and his affairs 
became one of the most important elements of that show. Right. And it was something that came up as a line of dialogue that came out of nowhere as the writer was writing it. Right. He never thought about it, didn't plan it, right. put it down and knew, and his partner knew when he saw it, this is right, this opens doors. That's where you talk about the difference between right brain and left brain. Yes. You know, you're, and I never remember which is which. I think the right brain is the, what, the logical, intellectual one. Right. It's processing this raw creative stuff that's coming up from somewhere else. It's right. a constant give and take. And sometimes raw stuff just comes out and you stare out and you say, where did that come from? I have no idea. It's kind of like the story is speaking to you. So it's yes, kind of, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I totally agree. I love it when that happens and I love it in being involved with writers in the creative process when when you have like the brainstorming moments and suddenly all these gems kind of appear through one idea that leads into more so uh which I have to say reading your book I had a ton of those moments so uh, so I was very very impressed with that going into the pilot selling game so how many pilots have you sold I think it's about 12. Wow. Wow. That is amazing. So take me into, like, look, okay, so looking at the 12 pilots, how many would you say in preparing for the pitch of these pilots did you instinctually feel had an opportunity, like a true opportunity to sell? Out of the 12, how many did you think you were going to sell? Well, I mean, to be fair, a handful of those 12, someone came to us. Okay. Um, so we can discount those. I don't think you discount those because you still had to do the story to sell. But, no, that's great. That's true. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's this weird bifurcated mentality. I think we all need to have when we're writing, whether we're pitching a pilot or writing a spec script. I think you have to sit down with the absolute certainty that this is going to sell and it's going to make a zillion dollars. Right. Because if you don't have that certainty, then you don't have that passion. Right. You don't have that need and that drive to do it. At the same time, you have to have the absolute certainty that it's never going to sell. Because realistically and statistically, it's not. And if you completely believe it's going to sell, then when it doesn't, um, you walk away crushed. Right. So, you know, when we've pitched ideas, I've always managed to commit myself to what we're pitching. If we don't think it's viable, we don't pitch it. I mean, the only, the only time it's been different for that, when, when we were running Diagnosis Murder, we were working for Fred Silverman, who's one of the great men of the television. Uh, yeah, I've heard. Run all three broadcast networks. Right. Uh, and I think the great, one of the great secrets to his success is a physical inability to hear the word no. <laughs> and Fred would decide, you guys are going to do this show, and you're going to come out and pitch it with me. Um, which sometimes was fine, but the show he wanted us to pitch was... Star, I think, uh, what's his name? Reginald Van Diamond, Reggie Diamond. Um, he was the fat black cop in Die Hard. I right. One of those musty comedies on ABC. Right. Uh, he would be like Bosley running a string of undercover strippers in Las Vegas. Right. 
And Fred said, this is a great show. You've got to pitch it. We say, no. He said, great. Well, I set you up a meeting at ABC and NBC and CBS. He said, we're not doing it. Well, meeting's at 1030. See you there. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that, and, and I, I have to give my partner Lee huge credit there because he was usually the main pitcher when we went out and pitched. Right. And this was something <laughs> that we cringed to hold the notes for. Um, and he managed to go out there and just sell it like we really believed in it. Um, I will never forget the look of loathing in Jamie Tarsus's eyes right. as we pitched this to her, um, <laughs> especially since we had killed her on a diagnosis murder earlier, and she already hated us. Why we had that meeting is beyond me. Oh, my uh, gosh. But, you know, I think you always go in and think, you got to be able to say, this is a great show. This is why it's a great show. you got to buy this show. Here's why you have to buy this show. Because if you don't have those reasons, then you're kind of just going in and saying, here's another idea. Right. If you don't believe it, no one else is. Right. Right. Now, yeah. I will say that the pilot I talked about writing uh, in, in the pilot book, Ella Claw, right, was something that I was really passionate about. But intellectually thought, you know, very little chance of ever setting this up because it's about a Native American FBI agent who works out of Albuquerque and the reservation. And, you know, ever since 1973, the idea of a rural show is just death to networks. They hate them. Right. Um, <clears throat> it would be impossible to cast a big star because there were no big Native American stars at the time. I don't think there are still. Right. Um, it just had everything going against it. But we were passionate. We'd optioned these books, and we saw a show here. We went out, and the first place we took it was to an executive at CBS. And stunned to find that as soon as we started talking, his eyes lit up, and he was excited. Right. Uh, and it turned out that his wife is Native American, so he's very keyed into everything we we're talking about. And it was his passion and excitement that carried the day. He was able to go to the executive, uh, higher up executives, and say, "We got to do this," and that set it up. So you never know what is going to spark in somebody's soul. No, you don't. And I think it's trying to hit hit all elements in hopes that something will. I think that's great. Um, question, why do you think so many pilots that are picked up fail when it comes to going to series? You know, every bad pilot is bad in its own particular way. Right. Um, I'm hesitating because I'm just trying to figure out exactly how to phrase this because what I want to say is, well, because the executives are stupid. <laughs> You're trying to think of a soft way. <laughs> it's not true. That, in, in most cases, it's not true and it's not fair. But you have an awful lot of executives at many of the networks who don't come from television, who don't understand television. Right. And a lot of them who don't really like television. You know, one thing I've got to say for Les Moonves' regime at CBS he never seems to doubt what he's doing because he's a showman and he loves the medium. Fred Silverman and uh, Brandon Tartikoff love television. Right. And they could tell what they picked up. You have people from marketing who are making these decisions now. Right. And marketing is, I think, works really well to sell a $200 million movie. Right. Because all you really need to do has been all you really need to do is just have that huge opening weekend and then 
you know, you're kind of okay, you're at least at break even. That mentality is filtered through the television, and it's insane because it doesn't matter how many people watch week one if nobody comes back to watch week two. Right. So you have these ideas that are, you know, big and promotable, and, you know, every once in a while, one of them actually works. Revolution seems to be working. I know. Isn't that fascinating? It It's fascinating in the sense that, you know, I think that the pilot, I don't think that people would have thought from the pilot that it is doing as well as it is doing. So I do think it's, it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, you know, I think, yeah, you got, yeah, like Smash, you know. Right. It sounds like an interesting idea. If you right. think about it from a story point of view, I find it not interesting. Right. But, but I can see if I am a marketing guy or a business guy running a network, I'm looking at Glee. It's another way to do a musical. It's got plenty of drama. Right. Maybe we'll hit a certain uh, targeted audience. You know, we'll put it on after The Voice. So you've got a musical leading into a musical. I kind of see that. Right. I, I agree. Sometimes pilots get picked up um, because there's a star attached. There's a producer who has another hit. You know, NBC, when they were first started their downward trend, <coughs> you know, one thing that really hurt them was they had huge hits like Friends and Will and Grace. NER, yeah, they, they had yeah, staples. The creators of those yeah. shows all had deals to put other shows on the air. Right. And then you got, you know, Good Morning Boston or whatever it was called from the Will and Grace guys. Right. And, you know, various not very good shows from the Friends people. Right. But they're kind of contractually obligated, or if not contractually obligated, they felt obligated because they wanted to keep their cash cows really happy. Um, so you had aging hits and these sort of shows that would be maybe possibly probably rejected, except that it's got somebody who's attached to it they need to make happy. Sometimes, actually, I think there's a good motivation behind it. I think of that show on NBC last year, Awake. Right. Yeah. To me, Awake wasn't a TV series. It might have been a British TV series. It might have been a great eight-hour series. Right. But it was all based on a binary question. It's either A, he's in this world, or it's B, he's in that world. Right. I don't think you can sustain that right. for very long. And, but I think they picked up that show just because it was the script was that good and the execution was that good and they said, you know, it is that good. Let's roll the dice. Right. So it was it was because there's a strong pilot script doesn't necessarily mean there's a strong series, but sometimes the dice will be rolled in hopes that a strong series could come out of what may seem like a strong idea. I think you know, when you think about The Gifted Man on CBS and uh, the hospital show on NBC that also had to do with the ghost, was it Saving Hope? Or, you know, that, that also, I think really those three shows in a row that dealt with the two different realms, the alive realm and the afterlife realm, I think that it really just showed that, that that's not transferring. It's not sustainable, as you say, which is very true. I think going back to what you mentioned is very fascinating because I, 
I think from a writer's standpoint, it's easy to point the finger at the studio and say things like, oh, they're stupid. They don't know what they're doing. But I really think what it is and what you're you're talking about is it's shifting the focus away from the story experts and putting it into the hands of the marketing experts, which is which doesn't feel authentic to the story process. And as a result, shows are um, shows are not hitting. I think it there are so many things that go into whether a show hits. I mean, it's thinking about the right network, the right marketing behind the show, the right time slot and and everything just falling into place to really guess like when you look at, you know, NCIS as being, you know, one of the top hits uh, rating wise in middle America is fascinating. You know, you, you just I think what I've learned from being, you know, 12 years on the exe- as an executive it it was fascinating for me, like when I would see the pilot, the new pilots come out and you would talk to all the agents and you would say, so where is the buzz? What seems to be the best pilot? And then to see like their top picks versus America's top picks. Well, something like NCIS right. is you know, what I always refer to as meat and potatoes television. Right. Um, something you see a lot less of now except on CBS. And it's really the mainstay of broadcast network because it is a big, wide net that brings in lots and lots of viewers. And again, let's move that. It's very smart right. to be very happy yeah. to be programming that way. Many other networks um, have this thing. They feel like they seem to feel... They're in competition with cable right. because the cable shows, the Mad Men and the Justified and the uh, Breaking Bad, they get all the good press. Now they're getting all the awards. They have fanatical devotion among the people who matter, which is, you know, their friends and people in the media who write about television. Right. You know, Mad Men has a tiny audience. It's less than two million. It's going up now, but it, it is in network terms. It's a tiny, tiny, tiny audience. But I think fully one-third of the audience writes either for a publication or for a website. Right. So it seems like everybody is talking about Mad Men, and nobody is talking about NCIS. Because right. people just watch NCIS, and they're not passionate about NCIS. But the broadcast networks need a broad audience. So right. when they say, we're going to do Mad Men, we're going to put on the Playboy Club, we're going to put on Pan Am, and it'll be just like Mad Men. Right. Well, first of all, it's, it's that we'll be just like somebody and we'll be original doing it, which rarely works. But also, even if they succeeded in making it just like Mad Men, they would be bringing in an audience too small to sustain their financial model. Oh, that's a very good point. I like that. Right. You know, I think it's interesting because, as you say, I think if I remember correctly, it was either the Emmys or the Golden Globes that, for best drama, they were all cable shows. I think it was right. this year. Right, it was the Emmys. Yeah. So it is an interesting thing because I hear what you're saying, and that's a very good point about the broad-based audience versus the more boutique type of audience that likes um, things. I have to say Homeland for me, I thought was probably one of the best first seasons 
of TV, I think, that I've probably seen in my career. So it. Uh, what did you think of that as a, as a pilot in a series? What do you think of it? I, I'm actually just working my way. It, it is brilliant. Yeah. Um, and I'm so thrilled. Howard Gordon and Alex Danza, who run that show, right. uh, I've known them forever. They... They broke into TV on a show called Spencer for Hire. Right. Uh, the year before, my partner and I broke into TV on Spencer for Hire. So I met them then and have known them ever since. And it, it's it's so thrilling to see two just wonderful, brilliant people allowed, you know, to have the freedom and then to hit on the right thing and right. execute it so beautifully. Uh, it's a wonderful show. Beautifully yeah. acted, beautifully written. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I love it. So, all right, now thinking about and change, shifting a little bit. So as far as if you were to think of a simple formula to give writers for writing a TV pilot. Now, I know they need to go out and buy your book and really dive into the in-depth stuff. But if you were to, say, narrow it down to, I don't know, five elements that a pilot script should have, what would you say? Yeah, my initial instinct to say uh, would be to say that if I knew the answer to that, I would probably be J.J. Abrams about now. <laughs> um, but you need a, a, a compelling central conflict mm -hmm. that will intrigue people immediately. You know, you look at the shows that last. I mean, even... Um, smash, you know, you go, oh, yeah, I see the conflict there. You've got the creator of the show and the star of the show, and they're fighting over the destiny of the show. You know, maybe that doesn't appeal to everybody, but to the people it does appeal, they get it right away. Uh, you know, revenge. Oh, absolutely, this woman's coming back after years away to get revenge on the people who did her father wrong. Immediately understand that conflict. Right. You need a strong, compelling, interesting character who can embody that conflict. And you need the show to be about something so that you really have a point to everything you're doing. Right. Uh, I think those are the three right. of sort of tent poles. Right. I like that. No, I think that, I think that, it, I have to say, like, your chapter on conflict, I have told writers, not only do you need to buy this book, you need to look at the chapter on conflict and read it like 10 times because there is so much valuable information in that chapter that I love. And I think just giving, like, like when you talked about the closer versus the shield, I, I just, I, I loved your, your talk about the central characters and what their central conflict was. Let me read a paragraph that you wrote on the closer um, that I loved. You said, what separates the closer from those other shows is the deeper conflict that lies beneath the surface, which in this case has to do with Brenda's personal issues. As a police officer, Brenda is practically a machine, efficient, unstoppable, ferocious. She's the terminator of the interrogation room. But in every other area of her life, she's a mess. She doesn't understand people can't relate on the most basic human levels and is constantly baffled by the way the rest of the world lives. 
Every episode of The Closer has two stories, the crime of the week and the personal storyline for Brenda, and it's the struggle between these two sides of her personality that drives the show. I I love that. And, I, and then I love the, the last paragraph on this bit where you say, this wasn't accidental. It was built into the DNA of the show. Writer James Duff created Brenda as an outsider, a Southern woman newly transplanted to Los Angeles to emphasize her separation from everyone around her. This conflict was always intended to be one of the central issues of the series. It is what the show is about. So going hey, into... I'm, I'm actually so glad you brought that up. Yes. When I look at the book, right. the one thing I say, oh my God, this has dated, is my description of the closer. Right. Because James Duff did something so interesting with that show. Right. Um, that very few shows succeed with. Right. You know, he had that central conflict that I talked about there, and it, it kept the show going for a long time. But I think they must have started to feel that that in itself wasn't enough to sustain for, I think the show went on for maybe eight years. Right. And they began to look at a way of twisting this. And the last few years, the major ongoing storyline was ramifications from something she had done in an interrogation. I think in order to get somebody to confess or... Uh, revenge they couldn't get somebody. They just dropped this gangbanger off in front of his house, knowing that the other gang was there and would kill him, or his own gang was there and would kill him. Right. And this haunted her. Emotionally, it haunted her because she was, there were lawsuits about it. And the way they twisted the show was, Brenda was still, Brenda, this nice southern girl, she's very sweet, she likes people, but she was the Terminator. And there were real-life consequences to her being the Terminator. And she was so split in half that the person side of her is unable to understand just how cold and unforgiving and hard the professional half of her was. Right. And it really lifted her and made her into a much more interesting and compelling character, as interesting and compelling as she was in the first few years of the season. Right. I had, yeah, I had heard the end. The end of it was really spectacular. Um, I'll have to take a look at that. I think that's great. I love the, now, see, I love getting your insight because I love the way you see the creative process. With regards to pitching, because you've done so much of it, so much, um, you've gone out and sold 12 pilots, and I'm sure you've done countless more pitches. Take us into the anatomy of a pitch. What do you think are some of the things the writer must uh, do when he is pitching a TV pilot? I think the first thing a writer who is not J.J. Abrams or who is not one of these guys who has show, who isn't Matt Weiner, what you have to know is they don't want to be there. They really <laughs> don't. It's nothing personal. Right. But they've got four scripts to read and probably cuts to watch and their spouse is probably calling them with a problem from home and the boss is yelling them about something else and something else is over budget and everything is going wrong because everything is always going wrong <clears throat> and you are some schmuck, Willie Loman salesman knocking on the door with a briefcase full of samples. And even if yesterday they did want to meet with you, when the time comes they would rather be anywhere else. And so the first thing you have to do is remind them that they want to be in that room. To let them think, oh, you know, okay, I do have a million things to do, 
but this is going to be worth my time, or this is going to be fun, or whatever it is. You have to make some kind of real human connection. It's not always possible. God knows, I had terrible meetings where it's just, you know, you can tell, get out of my office as quickly as possible. Um, <laughs> no, that's a great piece of advice. I like that. Yeah, find a way to make a connection. Find and understand that you're not doing them a favor by pitching them your serious idea. That you have to find a way, not only to make yourself likable, make yourself useful to them. And in this case, the only way to make yourself useful to them is by giving something, giving them something that they'll actually respond to, that will work for their schedule, that they can take to their boss and say, I didn't waste this morning. Look what I've come up with. So, you know, <clears throat> understand the point of your show. Understand why this is the moment for your show. Understand how this show will work for them and pitch it to them that way. I like it. And then you've got to be entertaining because it's not just that it's a meeting and you don't want to bore them. This is the only representation of the script they have is the way you're telling it. You need to hook them into this the way you want them hooked by the script and by the film and the way you want your audience when they're watching it on TV to be hooked by it. Pull them in, convince them, and let them know you know exactly what the show is and you're going to give it to them the way it's meant to be given and they're going to like it. You know, be a storyteller. I love it. That's great. Now, and it's not to put you on the spot, and you can say no if you don't want to, would you like to share an example of a pitch? I'll talk a little bit about one. Um, I don't think it's going to come to bad, come to, um, uh, to life anytime soon. Okay. I, uh, a, a producing partner and I um, made a deal with NASCAR mm-hmm. to do a show set around the NASCAR circuit. Um, not realizing actually at the same time that several other people were making meals set around the NASCAR circuit. Uh, and, and, you know, when I went into this, I thought, well, I don't really care that much about NASCAR racing. Um, and I really don't want to do the same show that everybody else is going to be doing, which is, you know, it's uh, the dad who's the great racer and the son who's, you know, good-looking, but he's a troublemaker and he can't live up to his dad's reputation. Um, I think they sold that one to NBC. Um, so the show I came up with was something very different. It was a, a romantic comedy set around... Um, uh, it was sort of like Northern Exposure, set in a small, struggling NASCAR team. And the last thing I wanted to do was to say, um, well... What I have for you today is it's just like Northern Exposure, but we got cars that go really fast and they're loud, and NASCAR's involved. Uh, I wanted to let the people I was pitching to, the people who I knew also didn't really respond to NASCAR racing because, you know, they live in Los Angeles. We're not a NASCAR town. Um, to say NASCAR represents something. It's not just about cars going fast. It's not just about the Home Depot plastered on the back of the car. You know, let's talk about why the show is important. So before we say anything about NASCAR, this was, uh, I think, around 2010. So it was right in the middle of the whole Tea Party explosion. 
uh, talk about how we had this great divide in the country that, you know, we're ex- exploding in two different directions. We're just split right down the middle, you know, and you've got these one, this one side, you know, it's all about Americans working together for a greater community. It's a team. You know, we got the other side. It's all about rugged individuality. It's about, you know, rebellion. It's about saying no. And this is the core of the American spirit. This split goes back to our founding days. You know, we fought a war over this in 1860, and we could fight the same war all over again right now. It's never going to change. And it's a split in our culture that I've so important to me that I think is really worth exploring. And how better to explore that than through a romantic comedy set against the NASCAR circuit? And, you know, uh, that was always the moment that got them into it. Because, right. And I, I, could, I could see them. They started off kind of interested, and then they were wondering, where the hell are you going with this? Right. They knew they'd heard NASCAR when the agent had called, Right. Right. So, okay, is he just going to go on with political stuff for a long time? I don't understand where he's going. Is he going to get boring? Is he going to start preaching at us? And then, boom, to be able to spin it around and sort of undercut the whole thing and put it in this context is completely opposite from everything I've been setting up. Then they say, oh, well, that's actually kind of interesting, and now I'm willing to listen to what the story's about. Because you're, you're establishing, essentially, why do I care and why will the audience care? Absolutely. Right. Right. No, that's great. That is great. I love that. No, thank you for sharing that. And also, I was establishing, or at least trying to establish, that I had control of the way the story was told. Right. So that they would trust me. Right. One, one of the greatest meetings I was ever in, I was actually the guy running the meeting. Um, it was for a diagnosis murder episode. And a writer came in who'd never written a TV show before, um, he's actually a cop. He'd been the head of the anti-terrorist squad in the 84 Olympics. Uh, he was running sex crimes out of the West Side at the time. Uh, he's actually the only writer who ever pitched me who was armed, which I knew of. Wow. Um, and he came in. We're doing diagnosis of murder. And he said, okay, I'm going to pitch you this story. There is going to come a point some way into the story where you're going to say, wait a minute, you can't do that. That's absolutely wrong. And I'm saying now, when you get to that point, just let me go with it. Okay. And he started to tell the story. And, you know, it was this good pitch. I'm really involved in it. And he gets to this point, and it's like, oh, my God, he just violated our franchise. He just violated the, our, our second lead character, we can never do this. And I say, wait, I've got to stop you. And he say, just hold up a finger. He said, what did I tell you? I'm like, oh, yeah. That's right, <laughs> carry on. And he went through and he twisted it so we could see that what he looked like was completely wrong actually was a setup. It was brilliant. But what's really brilliant about the pitch was he understood the story. He understood how we would respond to the story. He understood all that in advance, and we just knew we're in the hands of a storyteller, and we trust him. I like it. I like it. No, that's great. That's great. 
I and I know now we've covered pitching and pilots. Give me, I would love uh, to go for you to go into your own story as far as writing, like like how it started and what your experience was like climbing the ladder uh, of the writer's uh, staff and eventually becoming a showrunner. I would love you to, for you to give us some insight on what that journey looked like. Okay. Well, um, we started with a spec script, uh, as happens with a lot of people. I, you know, we were starting in the I, mid-'80s. There was, you know, no one wrote spec pilots. It was just no one would, would read them. <clears throat> Lee and I had written a feature script for New World Pictures and ended up going nowhere. Um, and... We got an agent at William Morris who was not quite yet an agent. Uh, she was, you know, the last legs of the trainee ladder, however that works. And she said, you know, I should write a, a spec TV thing. And, you know, that sounds fun. I had come to Los Angeles because I wanted to write movies all my life. But, you know, I was writing with Lee and TV seemed fun. So we chose uh, Spencer for Hire because we both loved Robert Parker's books and had sort of mixed feelings about the series, and we did what I would counsel everybody not to do, which is wrote not what the show was, but what we thought the show should be. Right. Uh, and it, you know, agents sent it off, and we didn't hear anything for a year. And then a year later, the executive producer, Bill Yates, called and said, Hi, I just read your script. Would you mind if we shot it on Monday? Wow. Yeah, shot, you know, it was this crazy time. They had a script that had fallen out and just couldn't get it right. There were and he was so frantic that he actually, you know, picked up one of the scripts that was on the pile on his coffee table, and he read it, and he liked it. And in fact, I think they changed one line in the whole script. It's just remarkable. Oh, my gosh, that's fantastic. And they were such lovely people and so generous to new writers that, uh, you know, they had us do a couple more scripts, uh, which was great. You know, if the show had come back, I, I like to think they would have brought us on, but... Uh, it, w- it was canceled to make show make way for an Aaron Spelling series about a women's health clinic, right? Um, which lasted six episodes, right? And one remembers all the bitter things. <laughs> of course, you do. Um, I did some freelancing, then you know, got walked into the the writer eighty eight writer strike, and that was you know just thinking whatever. And right after the strike ended, every show started staffing up. Um, and our then agent said, look, Michael Gleason, who created Remington Steel, has a new show on the air with George Siegel, and Michael Gleason is exactly the man you should be with. And she was right. You know, we met with Michael. Um, I love that. That's a smart agent. I love the insight that connected that. It was. I mean, it was, it was just the perfect fit. Michael was the most wonderful man. Yeah, perfect um, great thing. And, you know, driving, I remember driving out to that meeting, just coming up with story ideas we could pitch him, and one of them he just loved and laughed, and, you know, we got the job in the room, um, you know, which was just wonderful. So it was a tiny staff. Uh, it was Michael and a supervising producer named Ernie Wallengren, who had gone. Yes. You know, just a dear friend. Yeah. Um, even if he did hire me on Baywatch later. Um, and I learned so much there because both Michael and Ernie were the best kind of showrunner a young writer could have. They were incredibly, incredibly generous and really lazy. Right. He <laughs> wanted to learn how to do the casting and the editing and the sound mixing and all that stuff. They would teach him. 
because now he do some episodes eventually. I love it. That's great. Oh yeah, I mean, I was I later, you know, I had jobs as a supervising producer where I didn't have a fraction of the authority I did as a staff writer on Murphy's Law. Oh my gosh, you know, that's it, it fascinating. Was a, dream a dream job, except it was, of course, a flop. Right. Um, and it was off there after 13 episodes, so you know, did nothing for anybody's career. And, but you know, it, it was a great experience, and from then, <clears throat> just sort of bounced from. Show to show, I think, was probably a mistake um, because uh, neither my partner and I nor our agent ever sort of sat down and planned out where we wanted to go and how we wanted to get there. Right. So, you know, when there was a job, if it was something we could do with a clear conscience, you know, we would take it. Right. And never really thought about, well, what kind of goal do you want to get to besides, you know, um, Besides just eventually. Besides just working and getting a paycheck, right? Yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, it was fun. I, there aren't a lot of jobs I took that I regret. Uh, right. But it wasn't. I do remember, you know, many, many years ago seeing Howard Gordon. Right. And he said, guys, I, I look at your credits and it's amazing. You know, I've done so little and, and you've done everything. And I said, Howard, we've been on a dozen swaps. You were on Beauty and the Beast for three years and the X-Files for seven years. Right. <laughs> We'll trade any time. Isn't it wild how people, what you can see and what others see of you? I, I I think that, well, and I think like when you look at your resume, Bill, I mean, it's I think it's just very impressive to see that you continually worked as a writer. So I think you, knowing the inside of it and how those jo- jobs started and ended, probably see it one way because you know of the political dynamics involved in each situation. But I think an outsider's view of looking at the list of shows, it's impressive. So I I love that you give the inside story. And I love that, you know, you're you're saying maybe if I had to do it over again, uh, it you know, you would have worked within uh, people who were more into strategically thinking about the type of outcome that you wanted creatively show-wise. Yes. Uh, and would that have worked? Uh, I don't know. Right. Um, I think had I sat down and thought, you know, who do I want to be? What writer do I want to be? Right. You know, I might have written some other specs along the way. I might have sort of tried to obscure things. But, you know, I don't think I knew who I wanted to be until five years ago anyway. And right. I'm almost always happy doing what I was doing. Right. Okay, so last section I want to cover is in, in looking at, you know, you've created longevity, you've worked on, on some great shows, you've, you've made it through some, some very difficult and challenging situations and, and come out the other side of it. When you think about, like, Right as you're writing pilots right now, what what is your routine with writing, and how do you come up with ideas? I don't know how I come up with ideas. I bet other people have said this to you. Right. I can't imagine I'm the first. Um, something just strikes me. That's right. A phrase or a character or whatever. Uh, and we all have that stuff that you know just shoots through your head all the time. Right. But every once in a while, one of them, you know, you stop and say. 
that's kind of interesting. Let me just jot that down and come back to it. If it sticks with you, if you keep going back to it, then then it's worth exploring. Right. Um, rarely do I sit down and say, oh, I need to come up with an idea. What do I want to say? Oh, what's that? Oh, look, there are a lot of fairy tale shows out there. Let me try a fairy tale show. Right. Um, because it does, you know, it, it, it would be foolish anyway. By the time I finished it, fairy tale shows would be over. Uh, it's crazy to try to write to a market that's <coughs> constantly changing. Right. Unless you can write incredibly fast. Right. Um, so, you know, the ideas, they come. I think you train yourself to understand them and to recognize them faster as you go on. Um, so you're kind of thinking ahead of the curb you're, you're talking about. Well, I mean, the ideas that you get, you know, you're just, you know um, I think, you know, when you work with story, you kind of know what makes a story. So right. when an idea comes to you, you can kind of examine it in three dimensions really quickly. Right. And see if there's something there that really intrigues you. Right. As, you know, I work with a lot of absolute beginners. I uh, teach an online introductory screenwriting class. Right. Marketed across the country. Right. And How can people find out about that? Oh, um, thank you for asking. You've got it. Uh, it is through a company called Ed2Go, number two, uh, and it's marketed through 1,800 um, colleges and universities and extensions throughout the country. That's the introductory screenwriting class. I also do uh, an introduction to television writing, which is much more hands-on, as hands-on as a four-week class can be. Right. That I do through the Writers University. Right. That, that they can get to through, uh, I think it's writersuniversity.com, my guess. Great. Um, and that we actually take the writer through a draft of an outline, assuming they can get through it in four weeks. Great. Um, and that, that's a lot of fun. I've been doing that for like seven years now. Um, but as I say, with the, the, the introductory screenwriting students, you know, you say, pitch an idea, and it's like, I mean, I know because I work with story, well, it's not really an idea, or it's like a third of an idea, or it's a partial idea. I think somebody who works with stories every day can kind of say, oh, here's a chunk, and here's what it needs to make it do a full story, and then you can say, okay, so there's my sentence. Does that sentence interest me enough that it compels me to kind of draw it out further, to explore it? Is there enough there? Right. Um, so it's just being receptive to the things that shoot through the brain. Right. Now as, I... as for my routine, I, I'm, I always feel terribly undisciplined. You know, I've had crazy people say to me, oh, you're so productive. It's like, no, that guy over here, he's productive. <laughs> right. I worked for 25 years with an absolute writing machine, which is enough to just make you feel insecure. Right. Yeah, I was like, I always feel like I'm not getting anything accomplished. And things somehow turn out anyway. Right. No, I, uh, I think, you know, I think there are ebbs and flows of the creative process. I think there, you, you definitely have the person who is incredibly disciplined and the one that, but I think when you go through 25 years in a business, I'm sure you've had your years where the routine was, was a lot more disciplined versus I think maybe just trusting that the idea will come and when it comes, then you will nurture it. Oh, what? When there is when there's an assignment, when it's when it's a job, right? Oh, then, then the routine is you know you get up in the morning and you get to work and you work all day, right? And you get it done, right? Uh, you know, I recently did a freelance 
episode of uh, Mystery Shows on A&E, and it's like, okay. Right. Let's do, let's do this, let's do that. And, you know, this is much more when talking about working on spec, which is harder for everyone. Right. Um, because you are then... Because there, there's no deadline, right. Yeah. I think I'm now finally coming up with a new system for myself because I get bursts of inspiration that then wane, and it's really a bad way to be, but I think... I'm going to now trust myself. I had to have three projects going at once, and when I feel my inspiration waning on one, switch to the next. If a student told me he or she was doing this, you know, I would scream at them for 15 minutes. But I'm, I'm thinking this may be what I need to do for the next couple of years to uh, keep me going. Right, right. No, that, um, that is great. Thank you for sharing. So lastly, do you have any additional advice for writers about how to succeed as a writer in television? Absolutely. Uh, It's pretty much the same advice I gave when it came to pitching. Be invaluable. Remember that your job is to make the showrunner's job easier. You know, as writers, we're all so driven by ego. And the crazy thing about writing for television is so much of it is putting your ego aside because you have to subsume your own voice within somebody else's voice and still somehow let it shine through. So already you're taking kind of a backseat to yourself. You really need to go a step further and say, what can I do now that will make the showrunner's job easier so that next time there's a problem, he or she is going to turn to me, that the entirety of your job, whether you're a staff writer or a supervising producer, is helping the executive producer execute that vision. So what can I do? Does the script need to be rewritten? Is he or she unhappy? I'll rewrite that. They need somebody to go to a production meeting? Why don't I volunteer to do that? Am I overstepping my bounds? Every showrunner is different. I mean, there are some who, you know, are generous and there are some who are, you know, completely controlling when I work on one show, a supervising producer, I never did anything except write scripts and be an occasional story meeting. Most people are happy to have the help. Adjust myself to the showrunner's needs and make sure that at the end of the day, I was a help and not a hindrance. That, you know, if I had to have a temper tantrum to let my ego out, I made sure to do it somewhere other than at the office and do someone other than my boss. It's so easy to get wrapped up in the politics. It's so easy to get wrapped up in everything else. But really make yourself the most useful person at all times, and everybody will want to give you a job. Great. Wow, that's fantastic. I love that advice. Well, with that, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And I am going to share a few upcoming events that I would love for Uh, the listeners to take note of that are going to be in 2013 with Jen Grisanti Consultancy Inc. At the end of January, I will be doing the TV Writers Summit with Chad Gervich, uh, Alan Sandler, and Troy DeVoid. We are going to London, and it will be the weekend of January 26th. 
and then we uh, the the TV studio conference, uh, which is being put on by Epiphany in Australia, is going to be from February 21st through March 3rd. Uh, we are going to be doing a weekend in Sydney and a weekend in Melbourne, and that will consist of myself, Ellen Sandler, Steve Kaplan, and Carol Kirshner. Uh, we are very excited about that. And then in March, I will be doing my uh, annual 10-week TV spec and pilot script uh, teleseminar. And this is everything that I teach in Writers on the Verge. And you can sign up for that on my website. You can sign up for the TV Writer Summit at tvwritersummit.com. And uh, the Australia one, and I'm blanking on the name, I believe it's um, TV Writers Studio Conference. Uh, you can also go on my website for that at www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. And with that, I want to thank... You carry your bags in London or in Australia. <laughs> I am available. You know what, Bill? I have to say, it's very good for me to know you because I do constantly get asked from people about are there others so i will absolutely keep you in mind when uh an opportunity presents itself because i think you're fantastic well thank you so much yes. this has been really fun oh you got it thank you so much for joining us and i want to thank the listeners this is jen grisanti of storywise podcast you've been listening to storywise with jen grisanti if you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. StoryWise is produced by Joel Metzger and Hot House Bruiser Productions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.